listening to episode 206 of Sci-Fi TV Rewatch. My name's Dave, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Wayne, as we continue our analysis of season one of Joss Whedon's Dollhouse, starring Eliza Dushku and Summer Glau. Oh, thank you. That's, wait, she's not in this say, one. That, not yet. Not yet, right? No, she's not. I don't even know <laughs> if she's in season one, actually, is she? Uh, I, Spoiler alert. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think she's in season one at all. But yeah, so, you're right. Yeah. I figured I'd throw that one out to you. Yeah, I like it. Now that you are ambulatory. Right. Yeah, walking, walking. Very nice to be up on uh, one foot and one boot. Way better than the crutching and the uh, the knee wheeler and everything. So. Oh, God, I'll bet. Yeah. So, But you still can't drive? or Still you can? can't drive. Nope. No, probably another three weeks before I get the boot off and then I can drive. Yeah. So, and I start uh, therapy on Wednesday. So... That should be fun. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I guess what I always found about physical therapy, because I had it for my shoulder for a while, and I think at my knee at one point, but it, yeah, it was just the pain of going all mm-hmm. the time. I mean, once you get there, it actually kind of feels good. Yeah. 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 Uh, I went there from, I had it for my neck, and um, it's actually my <clears throat> my younger son and I both, at the same time, we both had uh, neck issues. And uh, we're just talking about the part where they they do the stim, you know, and everything. And I loved that part. I thought that was great, you know. And uh, but he hated it. So yeah. Oh, I I was like, nope. You can turn it up, turn it up, turn it up to where my my foot's shaking. I'm like, (laughs) all right, that's good. Yeah. (laughs) So all right. Well, anyway, before we go off too far in our medical histories (laughs) histories <laughs> yeah. uh want to remind you guys love to hear from you as always emails to sci-fi tv rewatch at gmail.com or at the website where you can leave a voicemail using the leave voicemail tab you can record your own audio clip send us the mp3 as an attachment or just send us a tweet at sci-fi tv rewatch and as always we'd encourage you to consider joining the facebook group and join the discussions there so big weekend which is you know also kind of apropos as we head into san diego comic-con week which begins i believe wednesday they have some sort of special preview that night and then it goes into full gear on thursday but we found out about the new doctor which we will discuss next time so that was huge news and i don't know how closely you were watching it but the bbc was saying that we're going to announce it at the conclusion of the wimbledon final Right. So I'm sure everybody's thinking like, all right, please, God, don't let it go five sets. <laughs> well, and it didn't. And probably there's a lot of people who missed it, including myself, because they thought the match would go longer. And uh, it uh, so didn't. It was Roger Federer just uh, you know, wiped the floor with uh, Marin Cilic. Because he's obviously a Doctor Who fan. and. Yeah, he didn't want to disappoint the rest of us. <laughs> I mean, there's one point I think Chilich was so upset that uh, they weren't making the announcement yet. He started crying. So uh. nice, but uh, <laughs> yeah, like we said, we'll we'll talk about that at, at some length next time because what we did plan on talking about, you know, for five or ten minutes or so, is the return of Game of Thrones, which I believe I read it was 13 months in between. I, I could have that wrong, but season one, episode one, and you're more attuned to this than i are we back to source material now no way we are okay w- the source material is long 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 past so this is all but, new stuff so uh so while there are things that we could you know i would have predicted would happen uh hence like the opening scene i i would had no clue it was actually you know there's nothing from the you know, the what that george george R. R. martin wrote that would indicate that would happen so okay well i jotted down you know just four points that that really struck me in, in a positive way and you know i think you could probably predict for somebody like me that ah come on it's so much exposition let's get to a little bit of action but of course we did have some action uh, but, but are you killed off all of house Frey in the first scene i, I know <laughs> and you know what well, what'd you think about that scene well, so you know, obviously the first thing is Walder Frey having a feast, and so right then and there, 
I think what she said, you know, I've gathered all the phrase here. Like, oh, well, that's, you know, Arya. She's, you know, using the mask of Walder Frey. And she's going to kill off all the Freys. So, um, and, and that's exactly what happened. So it was, uh, you, you always like, they say, you know, revenge is a dish best served cold and all that. Or that it's unsatisfying, you know, getting revenge. But it seemed pretty satisfying. Especially when she, you know, said, you know, winter has come for House Frey. That was, that was like a great line. Yeah, there were some good lines. And, and I will say I didn't think that it was Arya, but I did predict almost immediately that everybody was going to be poisoned, which, of course, they were. And, and I guess that takes back to the time when she was, I forget what the place was, where they had the, the hall of masks of the mm-hmm. different people, where she, I guess that's where she learned her trade, so yes. to speak. House of Black uh, and White, I think it was called. But uh. yeah, so so that was pretty good, and, and it was really good to see her make some real progress. And and one of the scenes in, in particular is when she's on the road and she comes across the, I guess they're Lannister. They soldiers. were Lannisters, yes. Yet, for once, they don't act like a bunch of a holes and and <laughs> try to rape her or whatever. They're they're just nice guys. Yeah, we we haven't really seen the, you know the while these armies, you know, they're made up of regular people from towns, regular towns and villages. And, and, uh, and Arya kind of got a glimpse of that, you know, that she, you see her looking around and you know, she's thinking, you know, I could totally kill all these guys right here and now, but instead they just hang out. She shares food with them and wine and they laugh and joke. And you know, it was a nice little touch of humanity. Yeah. And then, uh, they, when they ask her what she's going to do, Oh, I'm going to kill the queen. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> yeah, sure yeah, you are. Yeah, that's it. You knew that was going to be one of two things. Either they were going to freak out and kill her or, you know, laugh it off. And, you know, they laughed it off. So Right. Now, you know, speaking about the Lannisters, the other thing that I thought was was pretty intriguing was, was that whole conversation when they're trying to figure out who their allies are, you know, for this coming war. And they, of course they have no allies. Why would anybody follow Cersei except that they're frightened to death of her? Right. Or they want to marry her. Or they want to marry her. And and then we get into, you know, the, the gray joys, of course, uh, forgotten about them. So yeah, of right. course they would, but I love but that. What whole a great ex- scene with the, I, I mean, I know it's computer generated, but with the, the ship's, black sails on the, the, uh, the, you know, for their, their ships. That was, uh, the iron born ships. That, that was pretty sweet. Uh, little scene there. Oh, I absolutely. I noticed it and I jotted it down. I'm glad you, you caught that as well. But when we go back to that, that exchange between the, what's his name? Aaron, Euron, Euron, Greyjoy and, and Sir and Cersei, you know, the whole idea about why should I trust you? Well, you shouldn't. Well, you'll betray me at the first chance. Yeah, I might, but mm-hmm. and, and it's just that. Yet these are the people that are going to have to work together. And, and then at the very end, he talks about a gift that he intends to bring her. Uh, I'm assuming it's somebody's head, but yeah, I think he's. Uh, I, I my first thought was he's going to go after Tyrion because that's really what she wants more than anything is is him dead. Does he really think? I mean, she even says, "I'm not going to marry you." as Jamie standing right yeah, there. Right. Uh, and, and he, and he, he alludes that he's like, I've got two hands, you know? So, um, he, uh, this is a, a marriage of the, the worst of the worst. I mean, Euron Crozai is awful. Circe is awful. They, they, this is the, you know, this alliance is, you know, just a, 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 a joining of the, the two worst, and they each need each other. And that's really the kind of thing that would unite them is like neither of them can survive on their own. Uh, Euron knows that I can go back to the Iron Islands, but I'll just be king of a bunch of rocks there still. I've, if I want to branch out a little bit, I need the Lannisters. And obviously, Cersei has no one, as Jamie points out to her, or she points out to Jamie. And uh, and so this is her only ally, her only chance in, in any way of coming out of this alive. Well, you know, and the other thing I find fascinating is that 
let's not lose sight of the fact that Jamie's a bad guy too. When, when you look, he's just not maybe as overtly evil as his sister. He's right. not a nice guy either. No, uh, he's not. But and actually, I, this I read something about this in uh, like I can't remember what. But you know, he he killed the Mad King for using the the fire or for wanting to use the fire on all of uh, King's Landing, and then his sister pretty much does the same thing. And the fact is they that interchange that they had, which is, I think, one of the first I've really heard him say these were our children. But, uh, you know, we forget that Jamie was their father, and he just lost his last child, and he seems upset about it. And Circe's just like... Well, we got to move on, right? What's done is done. And it's just like, wow. Yeah. Now, the other exchange, and I understand in a season premiere, a certain amount of exposition has to occur. I, I get that. But I really loved the exchange between Jon Snow and Sansa as they're, you know, talking to the, to the gathering. And, you know, on the one hand, they both make a compelling case. And and as she says, and I was glad they had that follow-up scene when the two of them are just walking together alone and he confronts her about, you know, undermining him in front of the others. And, and, and I just really like where that's headed, which is not where I thought it was going to head given, you know, the, the pre previews and the trailers that were available. Oh, where'd you think it was going to head? Well, that she was going to really openly oh, try to depose right, him, right, 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 as opposed to at least in this episode. Look, I'm going to be the other side. I'm going to be the person that forces you to consider all options because, as she says, our father was stupid. Yeah, yeah, well, she, yeah. She points out rightly enough that both Rob and and Ned uh, made bad decisions based on honor and and respect which are you know the morally right thing to do but which ended up that it killed him because well and actually rob made a you know decision of the heart that was his undoing but you know basically she's like saying you can't just make decisions because they they are you know they they seem right in the uh, in one light you have to consider everything and you have to consider it coldly Right. Like she's all about like, no, let's put out the umbers and the car starks. Let's strip them of their their lands and give them to someone who was loyal. And John's like, I'm not, you know, he, he makes a very Ned like decision of I'm not going to take away, you know, because of what the parents did. I'm not going to punish the children for that. Um, and it it seems like it kind of worked because everyone seems to be on board with that. Well, they do, and certainly when you see the representative of each house step forward and pledge fealty, does anybody really think that those two are making command decisions for the family? And of course not, because we know there are other older men behind the scenes. I don't think, and I think, I think that's what they're trying to show is that there's not. I think they, all the older men were killed. Okay, well, that I, I, well, I think is what they're trying to show. Because we see okay. that with Lady Mormont, right? Yeah, true. Who, by the way, is now my absolute favorite Game, Game of Thrones character. It's hard to not. I, I, I will agree with you. She's awesome. Although, I would say, for me, and, and I suspect a lot of Game of Thrones fans, they save the best for last. Danny, we can't really say returns to Westeros because has she... I don't think she's been here before. She, she was born on Dragonstone. Okay, but so she, but it's yeah, she hasn't. It's she left there when she was a baby. So right. So that whole scene where she comes, and I love the fact that Tyrion doesn't say a word the entire time. Exactly. Which you keep waiting. Is he going to say something? Is he going to and. Is it going to be the right thing? And on the one hand, he's matured so much that. I expected him to say something that was reasonably meaningful, but I think it was better that he didn't say a word. Mm -hmm. And then I love, she walks right past the throne. 
I start thinking, all right, is she going to go there and sit in it? No. She walks right past it and into the war room. Pumping your butt down on the throne is not going to get anything done, right? Exactly. And that's what she's about. She's not about pomp and circumstance and ceremony. Yeah. Get the job done. Yep. That was a, that was a really good scene. Obviously, you know, like putting her hand down and touching the, you know, she's just like a really good actress and, uh, you know, she just kind of inhabits this part, uh, you know, as, as do, I mean, everyone does a great job, but what a a difficult role she's had and the character has changed so much and she's just kind of been there the whole time, you know? Well, that's all I got to say about it. I don't know if you want to throw anything else out there. No, that was, it was good. Yeah. I mean, it was a great start. Um, you know, we're going to get a shortened season here, but, uh, really strong start and uh, you know i i know like i went to visit my uh see my nephew and his uh kid yesterday and he had two friends came over with their game of thrones shirts on and they had they left early to go to the game of thrones party that they were having so it's like become quite the cultural event yes it has all right well speaking of cultural events let's get into the dollhouse yes absolutely season one episode eight entitled needs and it was written by Tracy Balomo, who also wrote two episodes of Emerald City, which I was watching for a while. And it, it, you know, it was pretty good. It just fell by the wayside because of so many other things I needed to watch. But she also wrote two episodes of The Hundred. And nice. she, she was a staff writer for Dollhouse uh, the entire time. And it was directed by Felix Alcala, who did two episodes of Battlestar Galactica. He also directed the Battlestar Galactica film Razor. And then he directed a bunch of things on Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. So cool. Yep. And aired April 3rd, 2009. So even before we get into our, our initial thoughts, I, I was listening to one of the Dr. Who podcasts that I listened to. And, and this is the one, uh, you know, I've mentioned, the one that I, I listened to for the most part, and it's three guys. And he mentioned one time that his wife has a Doctor Who podcast with other women, and I've been listening to them as well. And they were doing a, a recap of Series 10, and they talked about evaluating the season arcs. They broke it down into the Doctor's arc, Bill's arc, and Missy's arc, which you know I, I thought was obvious way to look at it and and which ones were uh, i i guess the strongest and when we look at dollhouse i mean we certainly got the arc of echo becoming self-aware ballard Mm -hmm. trying to bring down the dollhouse and then alpha on the loose so here we are at episode eight i mean we're, we're way past the halfway mark i'm i'm thinking they need to start doing something with the alpha story arc again Right. It, it, just as you mentioned, I was like, they really haven't kind of, you know, I guess it was episode two that we got a lot of information about Alpha and that one. And then since then, they, he probably gets a mention each episode, usually in the form of, you know, Dominic warning everyone that if we allow this to happen, excuse me, we might be creating another Alpha. So he's just been mentioned in passing, kind of like a Kaiser Soze type thing. And uh, and you're right. It's probably, we're getting to a point where they need to either, you know, they need to you know, move that part of the story forward a little bit. Yeah, and give us some more information. I mean, Ballard, they're starting to pick up the pace on that a little bit. And of course, the primary arc is Caroline. We understand that, but... But still, I, I think at this point, it's not fair to evaluate the season as a whole because we haven't reached the end of the season yet. But but as we head into the last third, I, I think it's something that we'll certainly keep a close eye on. Absolutely. Right, now, now, music plays, I think, a, a pretty significant role in most good TV shows, and, and certainly Dollhouse is one. And that song at the end of the episode right. kind of sums up what we learn. We stay because we don't know where else to go. Yep. And yeah, really and the, haunting. Yeah, the, and the the devil you know is better than the, the devil you don't know. Or, or the devil you know, we all know, is better than the one you don't know. Right. So so, so what do you make of that? Let, let's take that one for a second. 
Well, I mean, what what is the devil they know? Being in the dollhouse and not having to deal with those emotional pains that they're all experiencing in the past? Or is it the other way around? Is the emotional pain the devil that they know and the devil that they don't know is the dollhouse? Okay. Right? I mean, it, it could, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm being devil's advocate, so I don't know. It could go either way. But I think you're right in that those are like the kind of the two devils that they're dealing with in, in this episode. I, and I guess I love the ambiguity of what you just said in that we really don't know. And I mean, there's less ambiguity about the line at the end. We stay because we don't know where else to go because it makes us then wonder, well, what happens at the end of five years? Right. Does Topher then reinstall the person's original personality minus whatever emotional pain led them to the dollhouse in the first place? Or do some of these people re-up because the pain is so great? Right, right. Yeah, that's 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 an excellent question. I, I hadn't thought about that because, yeah, certainly that might be, you know, something that, yeah, that that, that, that at the end of this whole thing they they might yes that what I'm sorry I'm not articulating this very well. What's out there that led them to the dollhouse is still out there. Like right. Melly November, her daughter is still dead. Right, and so whenever she's done, that that same condition is still going to be out there. Is she going to be better equipped to deal with that in five years than she is now? I would guess no, unless Topher erases that part of her memory. And and I think the implication is certainly that he has the ability to do that. And, and you know, we'll talk about you know this episode in particular in a few minutes. The other thing we get is some name reveals, and and certainly we've been able to match Echo with Caroline Farrell. We get the call sign for Melly, and I guess at this point we assume Melly is her real name, but maybe not. Maybe not, yeah. But we do know that she is November within the dollhouse. Sierra, we learned that her name is Priya, right? Because when she goes to that one guy's apartment. Okay. I didn't catch that, but yeah. Okay. So again, we're, you know, we're getting a little bit of, uh, you know, of the pieces put together and then Mike, what the heck do we know him from? I meant to look him up. Uh, yeah. You know, the same thing. Like I, I, I know I've seen him before, but I couldn't. Right. But, uh, Mike is of course a call, one of the call signs in, in the military alphabet for the letter M obviously. So, uh, he doesn't last long as part of the group though, which, which again, I thought was, was good. I mean, it was just, I guess his personality and he try as he might, he couldn't stay under the radar. Right. But it gets us back to what is it that the wits really testing here? You know, because immediately they start, I think it's when they get in the black SUV and then it cuts to DeWitt and Topher and they know exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it almost sounded like Dominic didn't know that the plan was to let them get out of the building. Well, I, I think he knew, um, but he just obviously was not like super psyched about it. Again, it goes back to what did Topher give them? You know, because they have enough memory, enough awareness that we don't belong here. We're being held prisoners here. And I love, though, Mike's first reaction that, well, it must be aliens. Right. (laughs) And look, we're all here because we're science fiction fans. That's not as far-fetched as it sounded to the rest of them. Right. Um, I mean, when you consider the science fiction genre. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We've we've accepted that they are wiping people's memories and replacing it with whatever personality they want. So, but aliens is crazy though, right? Well, (laughs) I mean, it is within the context of the show, but it's not as if we haven't seen any alien abduction stories in sci-fi. But, you know, getting back to the names for a second, Victor points out that 
you know, this is the military alphabet, which certainly makes sense that he would know that immediately because of his background in the military that we learned last time. Echo then asks, well, are we government prisoners? Which is something that I brought up, you know, yeah. a, a couple weeks ago in the podcast. So again, I I love what this episode did, which was just to throw out little lines here and there that really are meaningful that don't get explored in this episode, but really lay a lot of groundwork as we get to the last third. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think what you had mentioned a couple of times of the military uh, nomenclature for the, for the dolls, you know, and then her question, are we prisoners of the government? You know, that is this a government operation? You know, like why would they give them these military names if it weren't? You know, it almost certainly makes you think that, that the government is definitely involved here somehow. So, all right. Well, the episode is titled Needs. And DeWitt sort of, I don't even say alludes because she kind of comes right out and says it that part of this exercise is to see how each of them acquires what it is they need. So for our group of four, Caroline, and, and she even says it again, she needs to make a difference. And of course, it goes back to freeing the animals, and here she's freeing the actives. Victor, I mean, to me, it seems as if he needs to protect somebody. And, and obviously, he's chosen Sierra. And by extension, I wonder if her need is for somebody to protect and defend her because she was in a situation before where no one did. And then Melly, her need is to just see her daughter and I guess come to terms with her death. Mm-hmm. Am I missing anything? Um, yeah. Did, did we talk about like con- the for Sierra to confront her, her uh, the you know, her abuser, her attacker, whatever? Uh, well, we didn't, and we will because that's one of those things that again, something I like about this episode, leaving it sort of ambiguous because, well, look, we're talking about now. So uh, they go to that guy's apartment and basically it sounds as if she's saying he's the one who put me in the dollhouse. Mm -hmm. Well, what does that mean? Exactly. Because, Because it sounds as if she wouldn't have sex with him and that's why he put her in the dollhouse. Yet he says something that lets us know he's a dollhouse client. Right. So and, then and that he ironically, you know, I guess asks for her. Right. So then what I'm wondering is this guy clearly has money and power. Sure. As do all the clients of the dollhouse. My guess is that he went out with Priya outside the dollhouse, pre-dollhouse for her, Mm -hmm. and that she rebuffed him, refused him, whatever. And this is a man that does not take well to know, and somehow his wealth and power enabled him to then put her there. Yeah. You know what? You're not going to put out for me. Then you're going to the dollhouse and you will put out for me. Right. And, and he says as much, right? He says it, how it took a lot of money and influence to, to get her in there, which then, you know, we, we, we look at that. That's the one thing that we've kind of like DeWitt has had, I guess, quote unquote, going for her is this idea that what, that the people in there, despite being, you know, because they're broken and because they have problems or whatever, they, they have chosen to be in the dollhouse of their own free will. I mean, they might have been kind of forced into that decision, but ultimately we thought that they made the decision to, to be there. And, but now that kind of, this flies in the face of that. Like, it doesn't seem like Sierra, Priya, whatever was able to make that decision on her own, that she was forced into uh, her life in the dollhouse. Right. So did DeWitt just not vet her properly? That certainly seems un-DeWitt-like. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> so then is she doing a favor for this man who is clearly powerful enough that she will compromise her ethics, which I guess you could argue is an oxymoron of sorts. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but because as you said, with the others, with Caroline, Victor, and Melly, we understand what led them to the dollhouse and, and that, that DeWitt is giving them something they need. So as, as you said, with Sierra, it, it's completely different. Right. So right. Well, we get that opening scene and, and it doesn't take anybody long to figure, okay, this is a dream because yeah. wearing a sexy outfit, Caroline yeah. or Echo shows up at Ballard's door. He's shirtless, of course comes on to him because she has the thing he needs, which goes back to the episode title again. And then I love Melly comes in, <laughs> chastises him for not being able to wait after her departure. And then Caroline appearing dead, yeah. which, which was a great visual. And it actually, I know you didn't watch Buffy and I've seen a few episodes, part episodes here and there. It sort of looked like her character faith in, in Buffy a little bit, but at this point, you know, even before he wakes up, we're pretty sure it's a dream. What does it all mean? Does he see Caroline? Certainly not as being literally dead because he has seen her on a number of occasions, but I guess that's his fear. So what he needs to do is of course, just literally bring down the dollhouse. Right. Right. And, it shows us that Ballard's life is so crappy, he can't even have a decent sex dream without it going completely south. <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah. So right, we talked about the season-long arcs, and, and in this episode, it, it kind of breaks down into the individual stories as well. And, and as long as we're on Ballard, he's tearing his own apartment apart yes. looking for a bug. Right. I don't know about you, but like I'm currently – trying to find some picture frames that apparently I moved from the location my wife left them and now can't find them. But I got to tell you, I don't necessarily have to make my house look like, what the hell is he doing? And then, dude, it's always in the air duct. Yeah. Yeah, Why didn't you look there first? Well, he doesn't watch enough TV, obviously. I guess, but so he finally finds one in there, takes it to a guy who, okay, that was a little where he's got to rough the guy up a little bit. Yeah. Well, and also the guy's like, I've never seen this before, but let me tell you exactly what it is. (laughs) Yeah. And it doesn't even exist yet, which obviously implies that the dollhouse is on the technology cutting edge in more than one area. Well, which we knew, right? right? Sure, sure. But that's pretty much all we get on Ballard's story, save for for the epilogue scene, which we'll you know talk about at the end. So I don't know that that's really enough for Ballard at this point because he's kind of an important character, you know. I mean, he is the arch nemesis of the Dollhouse. Sure. I, or I is think, he? Well, they just. Um, oh, did you say is he? Or is he? Yeah. Or is he? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the, I'm sure the dollhouse must feel like he's been fairly effectively sidelined. Uh, you know, even if he, I mean, he knows about the dollhouse. He's definitely on the right track. But what can he do about it, though? Right. Right. Well, I just meant, is there somebody Archer? Oh. Oh, somebody <laughs> and Archer. At this point, we. At this point, we don't know. Other we don't. Than at Alpha. this point, we don't know. Yeah. Right. We don't know. Well, yeah. Right. Alpha. Right. Who? Who from? What we've seen, what they've ascribed to him, he's pretty, pretty arch, you know. Like he orchestrated that whole thing with uh, Echo and the the guy with the bow and arrow. So you know, we kind of figure that. Well, and also but, giving the photos to Ballard because without Alpha's help, where is Ballard on this? I mean, he doesn't have as much to go on, right? Right. I mean, I mean, he has a name because of Alpha. True. Oh, yeah, so. yeah. So I get, yeah, Alpha is you know more arch. Yeah. Than, uh, All right. Well, we also see a lot about Melly in this episode, and you know, the, 
the scene where she, Victor, and Sierra are on the road, which, look, I love the whole on the road kind of uh, storytelling as a device. But then she mentions that she knows where Katie is. And, you know, we go back to that scene earlier when they find the wardrobe room. And, of course, it's certainly understandable they each have a rack of clothes. I was wondering why the baby carriage was there. That seemed out of place to me that simply as a device for her to remember that she has a daughter. Yeah. You know, was it? Well, okay. There's two possibilities here. One is that, you know, some clients like to have their dolls pushing a baby carriage around. B, uh, they put it there purposefully for November to see to trigger that memory maybe. Right, because we do know that they're orchestrating this entire event. So both of those make sense. But then she says, I remember my life and wants to get out of the SUV. And at this point, we're wondering how much does she remember? Right. And, and, And we don't know. I mean, we learn a little bit because she certainly knows where to walk. And we've got that poignant scene where she's walking through a playground with the kids playing. And again, for those of us that have seen the entire season and, and and at this point, even seen this entire episode, we know why that's so meaningful Mm -hmm. because of course she ends up in a cemetery at Katie's grave. And and that's all the information we get out of that. So we don't know. I don't think there were any dates on the headstone. I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think so either. So we don't know whether she died in childbirth, whether her, her child died you know, a few days after birth. We don't know if there was an accident. We don't know if she feels responsible. You know, we, we still have all of those things to learn, but we do get something. Yes. All right. Now, the other one is Victor and Sierra, which I, I think has to be a lot of people's. I mean, obviously, Echo's story is front and center, but you have to love the Victor and Sierra story because at the heart, it's, it's just a sweet little romance. Right. And you know, shippers watching dollhouse are pretty disappointed by and large, cause there's no real, you know, relationships going on here except, but now, now you got one to latch onto here. Well, and, and I, I like the fact that Joss is playing it that way. You know, it, it's, it's one of my, uh, problems with a lot of shows and I don't want to go off on, on that right now, but I, I like the fact that we're really not going there. So right. echo notices the cameras and then Victor and Sierra are able to escape together, wait for the others. And one of the first things you notice is that Sierra is speaking with an accent at this point, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure what it is. It sounds like possibly Australian, but well, yeah, I think it's like they just let, you know, Deach and Lachman, you know, talk in her you know, regular accent and not have to put on one. Just right. kind of throwing her a bone so she doesn't have to, you know, work in a foreign accent this week. Well, they're throwing me a bone too. Right. <laughs> so, all right. Now, Victor senses something bad happened to her. And, and of course, you know, you mentioned last week that, that the flashes she was having were of Hearn. And, and of course, that's what we see in this episode. So you were certainly right about that but why does he sense something bad happened to her and is he talking about Hearn or something else i mean is he just that intuitive i i think just yeah i, I think you got it there i think the victor is kind of that intuitive well it's when it comes to sierra because he's in love with her right so he um more sensitive about her changes of mood and and things like that yeah and and he knows as we said somebody hurt her and then i love that that response that she gives him that she knows he waits for her at night to make sure she's okay right and then that's the scene at the end when when they kiss but the fact and, and when you go back and look at that scene earlier in the episode when they're getting into their sleep pods and you just see him he's he's kind of waiting waiting Till she gets into hers and it's that recognition from her that so subtle yet just so powerful yeah absolutely 
Well, we uh, go back to, uh, you know, the four of them trying to escape. And she remembers men with guns that brought her to the dollhouse. Again, you know, maybe we'll get more information about that. I can't remember, to, to, to be honest with you, whether we do or not. But uh, as I said, I, I'm going to stand with my feeling that this is somebody that was brought to the dollhouse against her will, as opposed to, as you said, the other ones that really, I mean, they have a choice, but they really don't. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, like we said before, that they, they don't really have that choice. They're they're kind of being forced into this, but but at least they are ultimately making that decision themselves. But it's, like, like we've said now, it's for Sierra. It doesn't seem like that was the case. And if you think back to when we first saw Sierra, um, you know, she was hooked up to that really the big machine, I guess, that for the initial deprogramming or whatever, where they have the electrodes all over her body and uh, it looked very painful. And right from the start, we get a sense of, you know, that she's not, hasn't chosen to be there. All right. Well, getting to Echo's story, which makes up the bulk of this one, we start with that stand-up staff meeting in DeWitt's office. <laughs> How classic that Topher comes in late. Yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. it. A man, a man I can relate to. <laughs> and, you know, I, and always just, but, but then, you know, you know, not only showing up late, but then kind of like becoming also the, the center of attention as well. Right. But she explains that the house is out of balance. Actives are going off mission, generally becoming aware of things they shouldn't be able to. And it takes us to that, that shower scene when, you know, I mean, certainly the, the modesty kicks in. And did you notice how Victor handled it? Oh, I loved it. He was reciting the lineup for the 86 Mets. Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, that was wonderful. Which, but as I think Sierra pointed out, she noticed that he was doing that. Now, maybe she didn't realize why he was doing it. Right. And she incorrectly thinks that it was the Yankees lineup. But either way, she notices that well, that's important that that's something you were able to remember, something meaningful from your past. Right, yeah. So it goes back to what is the purpose of this exercise because it seems really dangerous to do this. I mean, is Topher then just going to go back in and wipe them again and they'll be back to the doll state? Or are we past a point from which we can't really return. And and again, that's one of the things that, that I think is so good about this episode. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and that's a good question because, you know, we, we know they've done this because they, they, for these certain actives, they keep, you know, having flashes. They, they're, they're, you know, that, that deep down memories keep bubbling back up to the surface. So, they're thinking, well, let them deal with those emotions and those memories, and and then now maybe they won't keep popping up. You know, right. So. I mean, I, I think it's uh, Dominic that points out developmental progress in the actives poses a threat. Well, yeah, right. which then goes back to DeWitt's not stupid. We know that. So she must understand it seems like a pretty big risk to take, but – the other thing, because at the end of that meeting, the directive is to watch every little thing your active does and report back on it, which, okay, on the surface seems to make sense. But for those of us that have seen the series in its entirety, one of the people that we need to really pay attention to, because he does have a pretty big secret, is Boyd. Mm -hmm. And Boyd is not sure this is the right approach to take. And I'm thinking like, all right, are you a cop or a psychotherapist? Because I think it's exactly the right approach to take. Right. And we could see his his reactions to a lot of the things that they're saying. He does seems like he is not at all in agreement with them. And uh you know, but at at this point we just think he is not in agreement with it because he thinks it's bad for Echo. Right. You know, um, but uh, yeah, like, uh, 
Yeah, Harry, he, Boyd's got, uh, he's got stuff. He's, he's not revealing for sure. No. Now, I, I love the scene when Caroline wakes up, realizes she's trapped, and then one by one, the other pods in her little circle all experience the same thing, and, and they get out, and that's, of course, when Mike you know throws out his theory that they've been abducted by aliens as part of an experiment. But the first thing that strikes us is they all seem fairly lucid, right. which is clearly not something we've seen before. Yeah, ex- exactly. Because uh, they, well, and it's even they very quickly recognize the difference between the people in the doll state and themselves. Right. Right. And at, at this point, we're wondering all right, how does no one notice that they've broken out of their chambers? And why were they sleeping while everybody else was apparently awake? And, and of course, it's part of the, the plan. Right. But Melly posits right away, maybe something bad happened to us and they're helping us heal, which is, of course, the prime directive of the dollhouse. But it goes back to clearly Topher and DeWitt are directing this, but to what end? To how, you know, and, and how much of a hand do they really have? Is it really, okay, I'm going to give you these tools, throw you out there, and let's see what you do with them, which seems to be what DeWitt's doing. Yeah, they they're fo- right because they're following them, but they're not controlling where they go or or what happens to them once they get there. Right. So all five are still playing along at breakfast. Echo is taken to Saunders' office because she cut her hand, I guess, opening uh, the glass on her sleep right. pod. And Saunders right away senses something's different and tells Echo to be careful. Certainly Saunders is in on the plan, and this is our first indication. Look, we know Saunders cares. And again, we know what the secret is about Dr. Saunders. But maybe, you know, she's, it's almost as if she's. We don't know. We don't know yet. No, I mean, those of us that have seen this series. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Again, so not saying what it is, obviously, for those of you that uh, this is your first watch but but you know we get the sense that saunders cares more than we've even seen previously because yeah i mean she is a doctor she is a caregiver but this little scene it just seems to take a, a step even even further yeah well yeah and she's always been very empathetic uh for the dolls but you're right here it's almost like she is kind of allying with them a little bit right and and as lucid as they appear the first thing that echo says is what happened to your face yeah which which of course is totally inappropriate to ask somebody so and and you see how she reacts Mm -hmm. which is interesting in and of itself because of what we those of us that have seen the entire series what we know but Dominic and DeWitt know about the escape plan. And at first I'm thinking, all right, this is just a test to see how the staff will react, which, you know, maybe it is on a certain level, but it, but it certainly seems to be more than that to try to find out what it is they're capable of doing. Why? Why do you want to know that? I mean, the yeah. dollhouse is the dollhouse. What has changed? I mean, the only change seems to be the alpha story and then the fact that Caroline is becoming a little bit more self-aware, which clearly Topher could address. Well, he, you know, he, he can, but you know, even he admits that we're not sure if this is going to work, you know, um, sure. cause they're, as we've said uh, numerous times, you know, this, the, the brain is such a complex thing, uh, you know, and you're dealing with it. There's no certainties that, you know, it's not like a, you know, it's not like a, a car where you just go in and, you know, change the oil or, or, you know, clean up the spark plugs and it's good as new, you know? Yeah, true. So did you notice the little detail when they were in the wardrobe room about Victor? Uh, oh, with the, the, the outfit he pulls out. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and quickly puts he back. He puts back really quickly. Yeah, it's funny. Well, and it's funny about their – because, you know, like, November picks out a very, like, momish type outfit, right? Uh, you know that they have, like, probably very, like, slinky from, from – or, you know – We've seen them like doing active things like working out and obviously sexual encounters and everything. So they probably a wide range of outfits to to choose from and and you know, she picks this one that's um you know, this is a, a nice flowery dress, but it's you know, not necessarily something for for any kind of action. Right, but when you think about what November's role as Melly has been which is to stay close, keep an eye on what Ballard is doing. I mean, she's playing certainly, you know, the the good neighbor, but she's got those mothering instincts. And clearly these instincts are because, and again, we know that she's programmed to be like this, but because she has a crush on Paul Ballard. So, you know, I, I think it's certainly expected that she picks that dress because it's almost like have have we seen her in that dress before as melly who lives across the street from ballard if not that dress certainly one similar to it yeah absolutely right but as they're trying to get away at the beginning echo notices tango going out on a sex engagement right and then tells them to go without her that she's going to try and make a difference, which are, are certainly words we've heard from activist Caroline. And then she calls the dollhouse a people warehouse, which is, of course, what it really is. Yes. Okay. All right. But there wasn't a lot that I had a problem with in this episode. Clearly, it's a really good episode. One of the female staff members finds Echo breaking into a gun rack. So, number one, why is Echo drawn to taking a gun? I mean, that's yeah. not something in Caroline's background, right? I mean, Caroline was nonviolent. Her plan was just go in, film it, put it online. Correct. So why is she drawn to a gun rack? Well, and I, I guess maybe this is the point that we address are the, uh, the end, I'm sorry, the beginning of the previous episode. Where we were had it's like uh, we weren't sure because there was some there there was some time information we got in there um, that we were having like a kind of disagreement about, and then we went back and watched it. So this is probably the point we could maybe bring that in, okay? Right? Because so you know we had, last episode we were not sure when Dewitt and Caroline are talking, and you had said that she'd been there, or there's something about two years. And I had said how, well, I think she's only been there being held for two days. And right. then we saw that in their conversation, um, you know, uh, Caroline says, well, you know, basically you've been holding me here against my will for two days. And then a little bit further down the line in the conversation, DeWitt says, we've been doing this dance for two years. So it seems like you know, that they the dollhouse finally caught up with Caroline after two years after she escaped through the hospital window. Okay. All right. right. Uh, that makes sense. Or they've been keeping their eye on her for two years for some, you know, reason that, that she was a prime candidate, uh, that they were just waiting for her to do something that they would then be able to right. make their offer. Yeah. But I think when she says we've been doing this dance, that that suggests that they've both been aware of the other's existence for that two years, it's, it, it seems. Right. All right. Well, But either way, so the point is that that's two years there where Caroline has been, I guess, on the run maybe, or has maybe has picked up some – you know, maybe some Sarah Connorish skills on the road. Okay. And, and that would lead me to my next nitpick, which is the female handler right. finds her there and they end up fighting. And I'm assuming that this handler 
like the mail handlers, has a background in law enforcement. And the fact that Echo pretty much kicks her ass seemed yeah. a little bit problematic for me. Or does she let her kick her ass? So, Well, uh, does she let her kick her ass? Right. That, that That's true as well. Or is it a combination? Did Echo pick up some, as you point out, some real life coping skills? But either way, she's got a handgun. Topher describes her, I can't remember whether it was Topher or DeWitt. I think it was Topher that she's Caroline minus the memories. Right. But she takes down the power in the house and then holds a gun on Topher who calls her Echo. Not anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, and this is the part I'm still not hundred percent sure of is, you know, did this go and, and you know, your question about the handler fits in right. Well, that is, is this what they wanted to happen or did this go beyond what they wanted to happen? Right. Because it seems like her getting the guns and, and everything might be beyond what they were thinking would happen here. But then on the other hand, you think, well, but then again, it was still like a little too easy. And um, like that, especially that, that pathetic lock that they have, you know, keeping all the guns, they had just this little lock that she's able to, break up with a fire extinguisher it's just like um it seems still like it's kind of contrived but as you said it it could have been part of the plan but but the other thing that comes out of this scene is that she asks topher what year it is right he doesn't really tell well he tells her it's 2009 but right she asks how long she's been there and we don't get an answer right so he explains to her, you know, what the whole process does, helps them become better people, okay, gives them what they need. And he tells her they're all volunteers. And she has that awareness that I'm not like them. And she asks why. Now, again, he doesn't really give her an answer. And we don't know. We assume it's just her individuality. You know, as you've mentioned many times, Topher can only erase so much. Mm -hmm. So I love it when she puts him in the chair to teach him a lesson and makes the analogy of his playing God, which is of course what he really does. And uh, he certainly sees himself as God. Yeah. Except not at this moment. And so this is where I'm, you know, either Topher is just an amazing actor or he is really crapping his pants when uh, Caroline puts him into that chair. Well, I think he's doing a little of both. <laughs> and the question I have, does she really intend to give him a treatment? Because at the end of the day, what she wants him to do is free the others. And he tells her, well, I don't have the power to do that. And then DeWitt comes in and says, well, I do. Right. And then gets, and then we, we get, again, some answers that we we pretty much knew already, but she tells Caroline, you wanted to forget. I eased your suffering. But of course, what is it that she wants to forget is that this was her plan and her boyfriend got shot and killed for following her. Well, right. That seems like a reasonable uh, emotional pain that somebody would want to get rid of. So, so maybe that's it. But then she says, I can't tell you what that suffering is because I promised you I wouldn't. Right. Now, is that a promise that they all are given? We don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And that the others are here because of similar unbearable memories. And and you wonder, it goes back to what I'd said at the top of the show, is at the end of the five years, do they have their original personalities replaced minus whatever the emotional painful event was that led them here in the first place or something else. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know either because I mean, if you, if you look at it from that standpoint that, well, like I said before, like the, the the issue that they're dealing with before hasn't gone away. It's still out there in the world. You know, do you deprive them of their ability to remember that and not being able to deal with it? Should it arise again? Or do you just, put everything back in and say, here you go here. Well, as Topher said that, you know, the, what seems like the, 
very large amount of money that they get upon leaving the dollhouse might be, you know, kind of like a uh, something to help them deal with the, uh, the whatever else they might have to deal with. A soothing balm. Yeah. Uh, and then we get to, you know, that song you mentioned about the devil you know is better than the one you don't. Okay, so as, I actually found out uh, who who sings that. Okay. It's called O Plus S is the name of the band. And the song's called Lonely Ghosts. And I, I, had, the, I had the lyrics pulled up, but then the uh, website that it was pulled up on kept running ads that were talking in my head while you were talking, so I had to shut it down. But uh, um, but yeah, yeah, so there's, of course, now it's... But so you know, the, the lyrics are basically, as we had said, you know, about the, the devil you know is better than uh, the one you don't. It says, like lonely ghosts at a roadside cross, we stay because we don't know where else to go. It says, the places our old haunts will miss us when we're gone. We can never move on. So, uh, you know, like I think there's a lot in that that song that's applicable to the, you know, the state of the dolls here, right? Yeah, and it's playing as the actives are leaving the building to walk into the sunlight, if you will. And, of course, the irony is that just because they're walking into the light, they're not going to have the same recognition that our four are having. Or are they? I mean, I'm under the assumption that these four are special in this exercise and that their level of awareness is not what the others are experiencing because we certainly see the others walking about the dollhouse, you know, before they break out and they're just as they always are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and they say as much that, you know, that the, I can't remember the term that they use, but basically what you just said, you know, the, the actives that are, you know, experiencing more of the flashbacks and are recovering their, more of their memories uh, are the ones that have to go and try and deal with their stuff. And then, you know, so they all get what they need. I think Caroline even collapses as everybody leaves the building because that's what she needed. So her need was met. Yeah. But the other thing, and I think it's Dominic that brings it up. I could be wrong. The idea of self-guided journeys as it relates to the actives, as if this might be part of a new plan. And I'm wondering, well, what's the plan to give actives a certain level of autonomy, which kind of circumvents the whole purpose of the yeah. dollhouse, at least as far as tie- client tastes go. Sure. Sure. I, I, I can't imagine that's, that's part of it. So I, I think, you know, what but, it would seem is that they're trying to remove the last bits of autonomy and you know, by having them, you know, experience something that they won't have the need for it anymore, I guess. Well, that makes sense to me. So I guess what I I sense here, though, is this growing rift between Dominic and DeWitt. And I would say Topher, but he's sort of oblivious. You know, he's speaking of autonomy. I mean, he's given a lot of autonomy in what he does, but he is watched closely by DeWitt. There's there's certainly no question. So, So we get to the closing scene, which... I think is one of the best closing scenes of the series so far. Caroline has left a message on Ballard's phone telling him that they, meaning the dollhouse have a file on him that they're somewhere underground. Come rescue us, (laughs) which is of course, exactly the kind of thing he wants to hear because not only does it give him something to go on, but you know, it, it certainly proves his approach is the right approach that there are people here who want to be saved. Right. And so if we're talking about the dollhouse dealing with the, the needs of the actives, well here, maybe they're dealing with Ballard's needs, right? That he needs to be on the trail. He needs to be hunting down the mystery. You know, he needs to save Caroline. Um, right and so is right. this and, uh, again is this is this really caroline genuinely getting a call for help or is this the dollhouse orchestrating this right and we need more tamo pennicut so hopefully we'll get that <laughs> as a result of right. this phone message 
I'm not going to give this one an A plus, although I was inclined to go that way, but I'm certainly going to go with an A. Sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll give it a solid A. No A pluses from this guy. I know. All right. Anything <laughs> else you want to bring up? Uh, just one thing. We were wondering about uh, Mike, where we'd seen him before, and you did not watch 24 Legacy, did you? No. Okay. He was the guy in charge of CTU in 24 Legacy, his pretty big role. You did see Masters of Sex, though, right? Oh, yes. Oh, right. He's okay. Dr. Absolutely. Austin Langham. And Oh, I know exactly. That's that's where I know him from. Okay. Because he had a pretty big part in that. Yeah, it looks like it. And um, I, I don't know if you saw him in The Flash before you stopped watching. Oh, he was uh, like alternate Flash yeah, or Jay whatever. Garrick, he, right? Yeah. yeah, right. Had the little funky helmet that looked like Mercury. Yes, yes. So he's he's been working. The actor's name is uh, Teddy Sears, and Teddy's been a busy boy, and, which is good. All right. Well, we're heading into the final third. I'm getting ready to pull out the – actually, it's not the last DVD in the box because the, right. the fourth DVD is, is uh, of course, Epitaph 1 yes. and the unaired pilot right. and, I guess, some other commentary stuff or whatever, but – Anyway, all right. Well, we want to thank you guys for joining us tonight. We'd love to hear what you think about Dollhouse. Anything else going on in genre TV? Encourage you to join the Facebook group. Share your thoughts with the Sci-Fi TV Rewatch community. Already a member, spread the word. Emails to Sci-Fi TV Rewatch at gmail.com or voicemails via the SpeakPipe tab, which you can access through the website. And we'll be back next week to talk about Dollhouse Episode 9 of Season 1, titled A Spy in the House of Love. But until then, done, whatever that means. <laughs>